is before me I can only imagine Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine I can only imagine When that day comes And I find myself Standing in the sun I can only imagine When all I would do Is forever Forever worship you only imagine, yeah. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? forever forever worship you I can only like a hurricane 
Grace, 
All right, Hope Church, welcome. Let's sing together.
Welcome, Hope Church. Glad you're here with us this morning. I'm David, and I volunteer on the leadership team here at Hope Church. And this week is Passover week. That means that Thursday is Passover, Friday is Good Friday, and Sunday is Easter. And there are all kinds of great things happening at Hope Church that we're very excited about uh, this week. And one of those things is on Good Friday, this Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday Lord's Supper Zoom call. So that's something new. Uh, if you want more information, please email our teaching and preaching pastor, Ben Hiley. You can email him at ben at hopechurchutah.com to get an invitation to that uh, Zoom call. And uh, if you're a Christ follower, go ahead and buy grape juice and crackers. Uh, you can get that uh, from Target and Walmart. They even deliver now, and so you can continue to practice physical dis distancing. Um, but go ahead and get grape juice and crackers for Friday's uh, Zoom call. And if you're unsure if you're a Christ follower, go ahead and join us anyway. You can join and learn without partaking and learn all about really what the Lord's Supper means and the meaning of Good Friday. We'll be talking about that and celebrating that. Uh, because it's Passover week, uh, you know, there's interesting things happening. And one of those things is that uh, last night, ABC aired uh, Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. And just watched a little part of that. And it happens about every year. And I remember watching that as a child. Uh, not brand new. It was I'm not that old. It was in uh, syndication. Uh, but I remember watching it as a child and being particularly fascinated, fascinated with the plagues and even when the plague of death comes, it comes in this green mist, and, and really it's kind of an invisible enemy. And it's interesting if we think about the fact that the Bible actually has a lot to say about uh, disease. And um, even this week, I heard a lot in the media, uh, Vice President Pence at the end of all the press conferences has been quoting a piece of scripture uh, and I don't know that everybody's picked up on it because he's kind of said what he wants to say. And then he says, and then he, then our land will be healed or something like that. Uh, and on Instagram, actually, I think one of the Kardashians, uh, Instagram, second Chronicles seven fourteen. Now I'm not a follower of the Kardashians. There was actually a news story about this particular verse. I promise you, you can check my Instagram account, uh, but this 2 Chronicles 7.14 has something to say to us. And let's look at it real quick. 2 Chronicles 7, let's look at 13 and 14. The Bible says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this was written, God is speaking to a different context. He's speaking to King Solomon. There's a theocracy that he's speaking to. So not everything is directly applicable, but what does this have to say to us in our day? Because God never changes. So what is he saying to us in this different context? And I would just, I would just say to you that there's a few takeaways for today. And one of those is that God is able to crush the curve. We're all talking about flattening the curve. We're all practicing physical distancing. That's wise. In love for our neighbor, we're doing all that we can. 
But really, God is able. God is in power. And this verse says that it starts with God's people. If my people who are called by my name. It's not saying all of America necessarily. It's saying it starts with, with, with God's people. And that humility is necessary for prayer and that repentance is critical. That, that God's people have to look and evaluate our own wicked ways. What are those and how do we turn from those? And, you know, I just think that, that it's incumbent upon God's people to take this up and say, listen, this is serious. This is a global pandemic. This is something we've never experienced before. And it's time for us to evaluate the idols of our own hearts and to repent of those things and turn to Jesus and ask him for healing. And a lot of people will throw around, God bless America. We can't demand that God bless America if we're not willing to say, God, we want your will to be done in our lives. And that starts with God's people. And throughout the Bible, Jesus heals. It's what Jesus does. And we're going to talk a lot about him today in song and in this sermon that Ben is about to preach. We're going to lift up Jesus. We're going to turn to Jesus and we see him as a healer. That's what he does throughout his ministry on earth. Uh, Jesus has the power over disease. The question is, will we allow him the power over us? So let's pray and submit ourselves to Jesus today. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for what you teach us in your word. I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I also thank you for the call to repentance. God, that we should humble ourselves and pray right now, that we should repent of our sin, our, the ways in which we've placed so many other things above you, God. And I just pray that as we do that, that you would come to us, that you would heal us, God. And I pray that we would make you first this morning and throughout this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's sing up, church.
shame and all of our pain down at the feet of Jesus. But I just thank you for your word that encourages us. God, it reminds us of the hope that we have in you. And uh, God, I just pray that as we hear from your word, God, that you would make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. So glad I'm with you and you're with me this morning as we uh, continue to study and think about the stuff that's going on in our world. If you will, please turn with me. You can turn or tap your way to John chapter 12. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And we're going to be in John chapter 12 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and flip there. If not, please don't panic. We'll have the words on the screen here. And um, John chapter 12 is the passage about the triumphal entry because today is Palm Sunday. Now, I don't know if you knew that or not. We're going to talk about what that means. But um, it hit me really late in the game, uh, embarrassingly late for the teaching pastor of a church, uh, that this week is Palm Sunday. That's because it doesn't feel like Easter. It doesn't feel like a normal spring. It feels like a crazy time. It feels like COVID. And so I have been thinking and planning on things to talk about that revolve around COVID. There's so much to talk about. There's all the silly kind of hard stuff with COVID, like uh, your hands getting dry because you're washing them all the time. You're bored. Your kids are around and then they're still around. There's that cats in the cradle song. It has no more sting. Uh, you've lost all of the kind of guilt-inducing feelings that song used to have. I would like to feel guilty when I hear that song now. Uh, I'm around my kids way too much, and that's a silly kind of hardship. But of course, then there's the real hardships that are part of all this. People are dying. More people every day. People are in hospital rooms, and they can't see their loved ones because there's fear that there's going to be some kind of cross-contamination. Heard about that this week. A guy can't get with his wife in to see their daughter, who's on a ventilator. You have people who, didn't, who do die, and then their family can't get together to mourn together. You have the stories coming out of China, where now, finally, as people are starting to get back out of their isolation, divorce rates are going up. And there's a part of you that can kind of like giggle at that a little bit. But no. People's marriages are going through a really hard time right now. You're always struggling. You're always stressed about money. And then to be face to face with this other person and there's no solutions. Then let's just talk about the money. The economy is ground to a halt. More and more and more people are becoming unemployed furloughed, fired. There's lots of stuff to talk about with COVID. And into all of these concerns kind of barges in Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we talk about the day in the Holy Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death and then resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Easter. The week before that, the Sunday before his resurrection, he comes into Jerusalem and the people triumphantly celebrate that entry by laying down palm branches. So Jesus walks on a donkey across these palm branches and it's this big celebration. And so we celebrate that on the Sunday before Easter as we were remembering Holy Week. And again, there's part of me that thinks this is just barging into our schedule. We got real stuff to talk about. And now we got to go through this tradition. Um, 
until, of course, you start to study Palm Sunday. Then you see that the crowds around Jesus on Palm Sunday had the exact same emotional roller coaster that I had in preparing this message. This idea that there's what I want, I know what I want, and then I got something totally different. And what I got was not what I wanted, but it was what I needed. And far apart from Palm Sunday and the things of Christ being far below or outside of the COVID stuff, the economy stuff, we find that the COVID stuff and the economy stuff fit very easily within what Jesus has come to do and teach. So today, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to look into and look at this passage of Scripture and understand the meaning of it so that we can understand that while it might not be what we want, it is what we've got, and by God's grace, it's what we need. So look with me, if you will, John 12. And let's learn what Jesus experiences as he comes into Jerusalem. It says in John chapter 12, verse 12, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We'll talk about what that is in just a second. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So what's happening? In the storyline of the Gospels, there's all kinds of things that have been happening, and there's all kinds of big things that are about to happen. And if you understand both of those, then you start to understand exactly how important this link in the chain is. Jesus has been doing all of this ministry, a lot of it outside of Jerusalem. He's been up in Galilee. He's been doing all Galilee. He's been doing all kinds of different stuff. And his friend Lazarus just died. Sort of. Like he definitely died. But then Jesus comes into this funeral. He comes in to see this tomb. He weeps over the fact of death, over the death of this one that he loves, the death of someone that he could have stopped but didn't. And then he calls Lazarus up out of the grave. Dead four days. His sister's concerned that he's going to be stinky. He's so dead. And yet when Jesus comes, Lazarus gets up out of the grave and walks out. Now, understandably, this has created something of a hubbub. Everybody's hearing about it. Everybody's getting to see what this Jesus is really able to do. He's had other times when he's raised people from the dead, but a lot of times those were not as public. Yet this Lazarus guy, now the people are seeing. This is a sign that people are receiving in their own way. 
So much so that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes from a feast in Bethany with Lazarus and his family. At that feast, in the beginning of this chapter, you see Mary anoints Jesus, anointing him for his burial, having some understanding maybe of what's about to happen. And then Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And then as he rides into Jerusalem, he has hundreds of thousands of people there extra people there, people from the areas where he's been doing a lot of his ministry because this is going on during Passover. We'll talk about more about what that means in just a second. But understand that it's a feast day. It's a festival day. The crowds are swelling the population of Jerusalem, and they're coming from all over. And all of these people are watching as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and they're doing something very odd. They take branches of palm trees, verse 13, and they go out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's odd. I don't know that that would be my first impulse. If you have a political leader or you have some important person come to visit your city, I don't know that that's your first thought. Let's go cut off palm trees and lay down our jackets in the road. But that's what they did. Why? It had a very specific meaning, and that meaning can help us understand what they were expecting. And I really think the key to having this passage affect us is to understand how we're exactly like the crowd in this way. So, the palm trees. These palm branches were representative of a group called the Maccabees. You may not have heard about them before, but maybe you have if you've ever celebrated Hanukkah. The Maccabees were a group who raised up and they led a military political revolt against the Seleucid Empire. Okay, brief history. You have the people of Israel. The people of Israel have the promised land. Then they get deported from the promised land. Babylon comes and takes apart the nation of Israel. Under the Medo-Persians, you have Daniel and all the stuff that's going on. The people go back and they start to build again. They have a second temple. They have a little bit of nationhood again. But Alexander the Great, you've heard of him, comes through and takes over everything. As he dies, his kingdom gets split into four pieces, one of those being the Seleucid Empire. They are over Judea. And they do some really wicked stuff to the point that these Jewish leaders then rise up and establish a political monarchy. They come and they say, okay, no, 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 we're going to be kings of ourselves again until Rome. But for a little while there, they were back in charge. The people of Israel had risen up. They had thrown off the fetters of these other kingdoms that had conquered them, and they had become a nation themselves again. And so, as they're cutting down palm branches, what they're doing is referring to that military uprising. As Jesus is walking in, they're saying, Jesus, you're going to be exactly like the Maccabees. You are going to raise up the people of Israel and throw off the shackles of Rome and allow us to become again a kingdom. You read through the book of Judges and there's just madness going on. Just madness going on as the people of Israel don't have a king and then you get, okay, well, Saul, he's not great, but then you get David. And King David comes and he brings to this lawless group of people, to this separated and weirdo, wild group of people without a king doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And he brings to that people unity. He brings to that people wealth, a great name, a secure nation, worship. He puts all things right. 
And Jesus is this son of David. They know that there's connections between David and Jesus. And so they're watching him come and they're saying to themselves, just like the Maccabees, just like King David, Jesus is going to come and he's going to make our nation again. And imagine how excited you would be about this captain. Jesus, as a man, is getting great crowds together. Armies together. Not only that, he can feed those armies with just a little bit of food. I don't know if you're a military historian, but one of the big things that generals actually deal with is not X's and O's, it's supply lines. Jesus is able to feed his people on nothing, miraculously. And we just got done remembering Lazarus. How excited would you be to go to war if you knew your captain could just raise you up from the dead if something happened? It's pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of great military leaders out there. That would be a better military leader. If he could say, listen, guys, this is what we're going to do. Everybody's in on the plan, right? Yep. And if anything goes wrong, I'll just raise him from the dead. It's totally fine. Yeah, you can see why the people were excited about this Jesus, this captain. They were pumped that he was going to come and bring their freedom, their independence again, their wealth again. And so as he comes into Jerusalem, they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That word Hosanna literally means give us salvation now. Or as it came to mean, we have salvation now. We've got it. It's finally happening. They're referencing Psalm 118, which says, Save us, Hosanna, in the original Hebrew. We pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Do you see that it doesn't say anything about the king of Israel there? So they're singing, they're singing this psalm, Psalm 118, that they all would have known about. And as they're singing this psalm, they're also thinking, this guy is going to be the king of Israel. We've got our new David. We've got our new Maccabeus. We've got our new leader. And instead, what do they get? Verses 12 to 14 says, And Jesus found a young donkey. What? Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What? That is actually a reference to uh, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. It's talking about how Jesus has come to be a gentle king. It says in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from the sea to the sea and from the river to the ends of of the earth. Now, think about this for a second. Jesus is riding in and he's choosing as his steed, not just a donkey, but the baby of a donkey. You kind of wonder if the donkey could hold Jesus, because it says he's the foal of a donkey. It's a young, not ridden often donkey. Now, I have never ridden into war. I don't expect to, I mean, if ever have to become part of a military thing. We probably won't be on horses, but 
I've never ridden in a war, neither of you, and yet I can imagine that if I have to ride into war, I don't want a young donkey as my steed. I, I would really love a war horse. I know that I can't ride well, but I, I would love a war horse. And I'm sure the people of Israel are hoping that Jesus would be riding in on a white horse. We talked about Job recently, and in the end of Job, God is speaking to Job, and he's telling him about the magnificence of his creation and his ability to control even the wildly, intensely strong parts of his creation. And in that speaking, he talks about a war horse. He says his majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Do you want to compare that to where the Bible talks about the intense, vicious um, bravery of donkeys? It doesn't. Because the Bible never talks about the viciousness of donkeys. You ever looked at a donkey? Much less a baby donkey? It's just not that impressive. It's not that scary. It's not a scary donkey. It's just a baby donkey. Why? The disciples are just as confused. It says in verse 16, 16 that his disciples didn't understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You see, they are starting to see the whole picture. They wanted a Jesus who would ride in to conquer, and instead they get a Jesus who is riding in with gentleness. He's coming to bring peace. Okay. How do we understand what's going on? We've got to zoom back. We've got to see the whole picture. Remember, Lazarus was just raised, and the Pharisees are ticked off. It says in chapter 11, if you go back one in verse 48, that the Pharisees saying to each other, say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They had a political motivation. Understand that they were trying to maintain the delicate balance between their own independence as a nation and their Roman overlords. And they're so scared that this Jesus guy is going to come and he's going to tip all the balance because he's going to kind of lead some sort of military coup against Rome. They're very concerned about it and they're very upset about it. But there's more there. You can go deeper. As you read through the Gospels, and I hope you read them and I hope you reread them, you start to notice that one of the main characters in these stories is the Pharisees. And they're not just these two-dimensional bad guys that come in at the end and crucify Jesus. They're there throughout the whole book. They have intense and long conversations with Jesus. Jesus teaches them parables about themselves that are detailed and emotional. There's something way more than just a political motivation. They, they want something more. My family and I, we're reading through the Gospel of John right now at night for our like family devotions. And we're coming up to the end of the Gospel of John. We're getting into Jesus' arrest and his interview before Caiaphas, his interview before Pilate. And my kids are constantly asking me the same question. Why is this happening? If you've never read the Gospel with your children, please do. Because they will help you to see how silly some of this is. Or at least how unexpected some of this is. They've never heard anything but positive things about Jesus. And they've watched throughout this Gospel as he's healed people. As he's cared for people and gathered people and taught people and sacrificed for people. And then all of a sudden the story goes to him being arrested and beaten. 
They're asking a really great question. But why do the Pharisees want to hurt Jesus? Why do they want to arrest Jesus? Isn't Jesus great? And I said something recently, kind of uh, giving away the story a little bit, about how they would arrest and then kill Jesus. And my four-year-old went, what? She had this visceral reaction. And I immediately went into, like, um, panic mode about, okay, we got to kind of fix this and change this. I kind of thought she knew this. I'm her dad, and I'm preaching this constantly. She's never heard a word of it, apparently. She was totally surprised that Jesus was murdered. And she should be. What is going on? Why do they want to kill Jesus. If you remember, if you look through the Gospels, you watch as Jesus interacts with these guys, it seems like Jesus goes out of his way to heal on the Sabbath, to break some of the additional laws, some of the understandings they had about the law. Why? Because Jesus does want to push these guys to see their own hearts. He's constantly saying really harsh stuff to the Pharisees. He's calling them out at every turn. He started his, his ministry as the one that John the Baptist heralded. Remember what John the Baptist said about the Pharisees? He called them a brood of vipers. If you know the Old Testament very well, a snake is not a great thing to be called. It's not a great thing to be called today. And Jesus follows up that proclamation over the Pharisees by saying things like, their dad is the devil. What's going on? Why this animosity? Because as things get bigger and bigger and the signs get clearer and clearer, the Pharisees, instead of following Jesus, dig in deeper and deeper because they have a heart opposition to him. They don't want him to be the Messiah. They don't want to see him lifted up. They want to see themselves lifted up. If you go back to John 11, there's this conversation that goes on amongst the Pharisees. And we know that John had a contact with these guys as he was let in to go and see in Jesus' trial because he knew people in this high priestly house. He knows about this conversation. He writes it for us in John 11. He says, Caiaphas, he's speaking to the other people. He was the high priest that year. And he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. On the surface, both the Pharisees and the crowds are not getting what they want. And as you dig deeper, you'll start to see that both of them, for very different reasons, have hearts that are loving and centered around Jesus giving them power here and now. Think about this. The crowds that are getting together and laying down these branches, singing Hosanna and looking for a military leader and then watching him and they can hardly see him because he's so low to the ground. He's sitting on the baby of a donkey. And they're disappointed. Why? Because they are hoping that Jesus will give them comfort. That Jesus will give them confidence. That Jesus will give them retirements. That Jesus will give their kids clear paths to wealth. That Jesus will give them health. 
The Pharisees are also disappointed because, yeah, they want all of that for themselves and the people of Israel too, but they also want power. You don't come, become a Pharisee easily. These guys had worked really, really hard to become these leaders, these religious leaders of the people of Israel because they wanted recognition. If you look through and see the way that Jesus teaches these guys, they wanted the ability to be on top, not to be dependent, not to be servants of God, but to be like God, to be with God, but not as his lover, but maybe as his um, competition. And so as Jesus comes, riding on a baby donkey, he's showing them. He's showing them their own hearts. He's showing them what they wanted very clearly. And he's also showing them what they actually need. Okay, the fact that this is all taking place over Passover is intentional. This is the last bit of Jewish history for today. Uh, I hope you'll stay with me. The, the fact that this is happening on Passover is very important. At the Passover, that word Passover is referring to something that took, took place back in the time of Moses. David referenced it. He's talking about that Ten Commandments movie and the gas that kind of moves through or whatever. That plague, they're trying to visualize the, the moment when the angel of death passes through the land of Egypt and slays the firstborn of every family. Every family, from Pharaoh all the way down to the meanest slave, they slay, that angel of death slays the firstborn of every family unless that family has taken a lamb, killed the lamb, and taken the blood of the lamb and smeared it on the doorposts. Now, again, there's part of you that's heard that story before and is kind of like okay with it, or you haven't, and it sounds like witchcraft. You would expect that to happen somewhere in Africa with a shaman. No, the people of Israel literally took animals, killed them, took the blood of that animal and smeared it on the doorposts of their house, and it worked. The angel of death then passes over their homes. And of course, that became a holiday. That becomes something they celebrate and remember year after year, even into Jesus' time, hundreds of years later, where they have the same remembrance of how God delivered them, not because they were better than Egypt, not because they were somehow good or righteous, but because in His kindness, He gave them the ability to be covered by the death of an innocent. Jesus is coming in during Passover because he has not come to ride in yet on a white war horse of victory. He has come to be that lamb. He's come to be that slain innocent. He's come to give that necessary blood so that you can be covered and so that you can be forgiven. The people and the Pharisees both wanted someone to come and to give them, in the crowd's case, comfort, security, wealth. And in the Pharisee sense, they wanted somebody to come and give them praise and power and recognition. 
And in neither case did Jesus come to give them these externals. He came to address what was most necessary to their hearts, to their needs. He didn't come to put band-aids on cancer. He came to heal their greatest need. It's not what they wanted, but it is what they got. And it's absolutely what they needed now. Are you nervous? You're looking to God, and I hope that you're praying. I mean, you're praying fervently. We're praying all the time. I prayed this morning that God would take away this virus, that he would restart the economy, that the, the things that seem almost superficial would get taken care of. But he allowed this. We believe in a sovereign God. You can go back to our series on Job. We talked about this at length. He doesn't cause it, but he does allow it. And what he allows, he uses. Even right now, I hope that if you're feeling this great deal of anxiousness, I hope that you have the maturity and the empathy, if you're not feeling it for yourself, to at least feel it for some of your loved ones, some of your friends, some of your countrymen. I pray that you would come to this passage, to this Jesus, to this event on Palm Sunday, and have your expectations flipped. You can come to Jesus, and you can pray, and you can hope that he will give you wealth, and a name, and a clear path for your kids to have safety and financial success. You can pray for him to give you daily security. And you should. But understand that when he came, he didn't just come to give you that. In fact, he doesn't really seem that concerned whether or not you have that. He came to give you something else. Something better. Something that was so much better that you would be fine with the loss of everything else. Something so much better. That the, I said this was the end of Jewish history. I wanted to give you just a little bit, little bit more. At the end of Jesus' ministry, as he, which we'll talk about on Good Friday and on Easter, both dies and rises from the grave. He's around for several days until he ascends into heaven. And then after Jesus leaves and the people are given the Holy Spirit and the church is off to the races in the book of Acts. In A.D. about 70, about 40 years after Jesus' life and ministry, do you know what happens to Israel? Do they then finally get all the wealth and recognition and nationhood and security? In AD 70, they rose up again, and Rome squashed them totally. To the point that they even took apart the temple. The one thing that symbolized not only the nation's wealth and creativity and history and symbolized all kinds of personal sort of individual identity pieces for the nation, but it also symbolized their responsible kind of connection to God. Jesus didn't come to make you wealthy or even healthy. He came to bring you to himself. He came to give you something that was so glorious, so lovely, so warm-making, all the way down in your belly, 
that you would have peace even if you were a Jewish person in the first century and you watched the temple get taken apart. Even if you're an American person in 2020 and you're watching your retirement get taken apart. Do you know that God? Do you know that love? That's what he's come to offer you. It's not what you wanted, but it's what you got. And I'm telling you, it's what you need. You can be a Christian and say, I, I, I believe that and I, I know that. Are you living that? Are you practically daily waking up and going to bed and then all the time in between experiencing joy because of that? If not, that's why we're calling on you to pray. I had a buddy talk to me about that this week. He was asking me about that. Like, okay, I'm praying, but I'm praying the same things because I just want God to take away this virus. I'm like, yeah. And he's saying, okay, well, you talked about last week. There's wrong ways to pray. We're not just supposed to heap up these empty phrases. We're going to just keep saying to God, please take away the COVID virus. What, I mean, what am I supposed to keep praying? And he understood, and we talked about this, but of course, prayer is not just making petitions. Prayer is your interaction with this God who loves you this much. Are you praying? When you go to the Word of God and you study it, you don't have to know all this Jewish history. Just keep reading, and you'll find very quickly that He speaks directly to you in your need. Are you going to that Word? And listen, if you're somebody who's outside the church, you're a skeptic. And you're sitting here, and you've made it this far, thank you. And this is exactly what you need. You need something that's impenetrable. You need something that's unshakable. That's exactly what Jesus is giving you. It says in John eleven fifty two, 52, and the, the priest unknowingly is prophesying, he says that this one would die, not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And abroad is going to mean more than just geopolitical boundaries. It's going to mean time boundaries as well, meaning that he is trying to bring you to himself today. Of course you've got questions. You've got a million questions. So do I. But let's talk through them. Because that's how big and that's how important this is. Do you have him? Right now, what we're going to do is we're just going to pray. And we're going to pray that God, even as he allows this thing that's going to threaten our health and our wealth, would give us that core conviction, that core assurance that we can only have through Christ. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray right now with your people all over Salt Lake City and beyond that you would please heal our land. And I pray that on all levels, Father. I pray that on the most surface level, that you would just heal the people who are on ventilators right now, and you would heal the people who are maybe sick and they're sniffling and they're not sure if they should get tested or whatever, and all the people who are actively carrying this disease and not even showing symptoms and just infecting other people. Father, I pray that you would take away this disease. But I also pray, Father, that you would address the deeper disease in the heart of man. We were always going to die. Our wealth was always going to turn to ashes. Is the greater problem solved in the hearts of your people? I pray, Father, that it would be. That we would go to Palm Sunday and look for a horse and see a gentle donkey. One who has come 
riding on this gentle donkey to bring forgiveness. Lord, I pray that people would pray that and receive that and be yours, that he would gather together his people from abroad. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Let's sing together, Hope.
and pray and the Bible says turn from your wicked ways what are those what what do we need to repent of and one of those things may be our absolute dependence upon security in wealth security in money and one of the ways God calls us to repent of that is to give and we talk a lot at Hope Church about becoming a growing giver and there's lots of ways to do that at Hope Church. You can give in the link below, just below this uh, live feed right now. And God doesn't give to a church. He gives through a church. And that's what we do. We give through a church. There's lots of needs. We're encouraging people to give blood uh, with the American Red Cross. We're, we're encouraging people to serve and to give to the Utah Food Bank. But there's going to be lots of long-term needs that the church is going to be engaged in. And so as you give, understand that you are giving to God's purposes here on this earth. And yes, there are purposes to feed people. But the main purpose is to draw people to himself. That is what God is all about doing. And so we just pray that you would join us on Good Friday for that uh, Lord's Supper Zoom call. 
you can, all you have to do is go to the website, hopechurchutah.com, and you can request an invitation to that uh, Zoom call. Go ahead and get your grape juice and your crackers and celebrate with us together, and then be ready again to celebrate uh, the risen Christ on Easter Sunday. Thanks, and have a blessed week.